wanted to talk this morning uh, about a very important part of the path which applies to our daily life and uh, is considered a foundation for the uh, meditative practices and this is the whole area of sila. Uh, sila or sometimes called virtuous conduct or the, the restraining of unwholesome tendency or the the non-action on that which is unwholesome karma. And this is a, the contemplation of sila is a, really a lifetime contemplation. It's about how we are in the world around us. It's about our relationships to ourselves, to other beings, to the earth, to the things that we use, and to the things that we're in contact with. And uh, this this, sometimes it's called the precept vehicle. This is a, considered a foundation because the whole basis of samadhi, sila samadhi panya, the whole basis of samadhi, the collective aspect of the meditative process, which is the, um, the, um, the base for wisdom or insight, the whole, uh, this whole aspect of samadhi is connected uh, to the ground of sila. It's very hard to have a mind that is uh, free from a lot of turmoil and remorse if uh, the way that we live in our daily lives is conducive to bringing about difficult results or results that aren't that easy to be with. Uh, so it's the, the, the sila is very related, connected to this aspect of samadhi. That's why one way that they talk about the path is sila as the base, virtuous conduct, samadhi, the meditative practices, the gathering of the mental energy, the calming, and then panya, the ability to see clearly the nature of, of the moments of our experience. It's also the sila the two of the first barometers, dana sila, go together. Dana is this energy that we allow to, uh, it's a, the energy of generosity, a heartfelt energy of sharing, of giving. That's an energy that we don't restrain, we actually consciously cultivate in, in the moments of our life, the ability to open and to connect with those around us through an open, giving, sharing energy. Uh, dana is a very profound uh, area to explore, but then sila, it's always balanced with this notion of sila, that which we restrain, the energy that we don't necessarily share (laughs) with the world around us, that which needs to be restrained and wisely worked with. Um, So this this sila, sometimes in the the early disciples of the Buddha, there wasn't really a need for for a construct of sila, because people automatically as awareness increases, as there's sensitivity, automatically the lifestyle follows. There's not a need for uh, rules or discipline or precepts as such, because one is, is in tune with the Dharma. It's very difficult to do that which is harmful. Um, as one heart, one's heart, one's mind becomes in alignment with the Dharma, as there's an increase of awareness, then naturally uh, what we do, what we say, what we're involved with is, is harmless, is compassionate. And so in the early days of the Buddha's dispensation, his, uh, there wasn't this uh, cultivation 
deliberate cultivation of sila because it was automatically in, pe- in place. Uh, it was just an automatic expression of a purified heart. But as the, the Buddha gathered disciples around him, and then there were some very sort of strange and weird and wonderful goings on that warranted some sense of um, discipline, some sense of boundary. He couldn't really trust anymore that that wouldn't generate itself naturally from the pure heart. People misusing the life, the holy life, the monastic life, people getting into um, distorted relationships, uh, exploitative relationships with the supporters, people all sort. I mean, if you read the early early stories of the disciples, some of the things they got up to are, are beyond imagination, actually. It's even hard to imagine. They used to have a group called the Six Naughty Nuns and the Six Naughty Monks, and they, they were mostly responsible for the creation of this uh, code of ethics called the Vinaya. <laughs> and they, they got up to the most incredible sort of antics. And they were reports, people would come and say, do you know what they've done now? <laughs> and the, the Buddha would call them and say, oh, naughty monks, naughty nuns. And then he'd have to lay down some kind of rule and say, you know, that uh, this isn't something that you should really be doing, in this, uh, particularly as, a, as a, someone living on the faith and the arms of the lay people. Um, so this, this notion of Vinaya, Called the Vinaya, and the when it's very, in the, the the very sophistic, it became very sophisticated, and it had its in, in the end it had its own legal procedures for dealing with errant disciples. It had ways of working with conflict. It had reflections on the relationship to donors, supporters. It had reflections on the relationship to the material realm, to what to one's possessions. It had reflections on the relationship between uh, between one's peers, between elders, between juniors. Um, it had moral, um, just uh, reflections on, on basic morals. And so it became a very complex and involved structure of which there's many commentaries and books written about. But Vinaya literally means, this word Vinaya, means that which leads out of the tangle. And when on the Buddha's deathbed, uh, he didn't, when he was asked, well, who, who should we follow now? Who will be our teacher now? Uh, the Buddha didn't actually appoint a successor as such. He said, let the Dharma Vinaya be your guide. Uh, let the Dharma, the principles of Dharma, when you're not sure, reflecting on the Dharma, when we don't know what to do or if it's ethical or not, um, if this situation is, is it in accord with the Dharma Vinaya? So this, these became the two great standards for our, our way of understanding and for our conduct as, as summoners or disciples of the, uh, the process of awakening the Buddha. Samana literally meaning one in tune with. Samana is, is a word that means in pitch, like if you sound a note, in tune with the Dharma. So, so the, these become increasingly useful guidelines uh, as one um, walks the journey of awakening because there are lots of uh, grey areas, unsure areas that arise. What, what, do, what should one do in this situation? 
And we have to ultimately, uh, we can ask for advice, but we have to really begin to be able to apply our wisdom, trust our wisdom to reflect, is this in accord with the Dharma, the teachings of the Dharma, this situation or this action that I'm undertaking, or the actions that others might be undertaking that we're connected with, is it in in accord with the Vinaya? Uh, Is it harmless or is there harm? Is it leading to the the, um, reduction of ignorance and and um, pain and suffering in life, or is it increasing those? These are the general guidelines that that one can begin to use. In the lay life, in the everyday life, there's not such a a, a complex um, code of observances as the Vinaya rule, but there is the, the essence of them are expressed in this notion of the five precepts. And these are, these are very profound contemplations for guidelines for integration into our everyday life. They're, they're precepts that arise out of uh, an understanding of Dharma. And yes, if we, if we are um, awakened, if we are in tune at a very profound level, we don't really need to think about them very much. Automatically, our conduct will flow in an integrative, integrated way with integrity, uh, with care, but there there are areas of our being that aren't necessarily um, that integrated or enlightened yet. There are forces that we can be subjected to that need some containment. So these precepts, rather than than being seen as a commandment given by being taken on through through being intimidated or, or being being fearful. They are guidelines, they are trainings, they are friends, really, that we can use. What something I'm going to do or say, how does that accord with this notion of the precept? And there's, there's something that actually over time become really valuable uh, uh, contemplations in our inner in life. In many ways, one of the things they, they say when we were talking about the human realm, that one that's truly human is one that has this, this uh, notion of moral integrity in place, that, is, that lives in a harmless way, that's not perpetuating destructive energies anymore. Uh, one is, that is truly human in the human realm, embodies this, this notion of Vinaya in their actions and speech, in the mind itself. Uh, and it also is said that as this, this, these, um, as the our con- as what we do and and what we say in daily life, as that becomes more in accord with the Dharma, guided by Vinaya, guided by uh, this notion of precepts, then the 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 doors to the lower realms begin to close. That it becomes more difficult for us to actually be propelled into extremely painful states of mind of being. It doesn't mean to say that we won't receive some of the, the, the resultant karma that's already been set in motion, but we're not setting the conditions anymore in, into perpetuation to receive that which is really uh, constricted, really painful, really hellish. So it, it leads gradually a lifetime of cultivation, of uh, restraining impulses, that are confused or deluded, it leads to a mind that is increasingly free from remorse, 
from dread, um, from anxiety. It really helps to alleviate having to deal with the consequences of, of things that we've done so that we, we, we don't feel so good about. So, in this way, the, another way that the precept vehicle has talked about is as a protection. So there's two forces that help. I contemplate this a lot in our work in uh, moving around in South Africa. It doesn't mean to say that there's any guarantee that one won't, especially in that country, be hijacked or or um, murdered or attacked or raped. There's so much that goes on out there every day in the papers. One has these lists of the latest horrors. And, and, uh, and I contemplate what what is... Um, what what do I trust? Where is my refuge? And what do what is my protection in, in, in situations? And there's two forces that I contemplate, and that is a heart of metta, developing a heart of non-contention, a heart of kindliness, not giving out the, a paranoid vibe or a fearful vibe, being able to see all beings as part of my own nature. And then this other aspect, a life of harmlessness to trust the laws of karma as a a protection moving through life. So this precept vehicle is is this notion, has this notion of that which can carry us. We've been talking about this uh, idea of vehicle, putting in place in our daily life those qualities, those aspects which can carry us through a lifetime. And they, they do become in, in this world, uh, we can be subjected to, to praise and blame. We can get blamed for things uh, that we, we, we actually um, aren't responsible for. People can criticize us. Uh, we, can, uh, we can be praised as well. And we have many different things that come at us. You know, people liking us, not liking us. Uh, life going well, life not going so well, ups and downs. And this notion of vehicle is something that steadies, that carries. And uh, I like, um, and we, it's something that leads to a profound sense of trust in, in our intention and our being, even if we are being criticized wrongly or, or blamed for something which isn't appropriate. We can know our own, our own heart. I like the uh, a quote from Kabir where he says, if you're riding on an elephant, why worry about the dog snapping at your feet? And uh, in a way, as we enter the Dharma more fully, it's a bit like uh, beginning to ride an elephant. And yes, there, there are forces that come and knock us around, but we, we gradually we can trust our intention. We can trust our ability to work consciously with the laws of karma. So the essence of sila is restraint, basically. It's not repression. It's not fearfully pushing away. It's knowing the forces that we're working with, that there's power in this world. Uh, the power of compassion, the power of destruction, the power of love, the power of hate. And we're subjected as, as, a, as a, a feel for consciousness to arise within. We're subjected, we feel these different forces in the human realm from the most heavenly to the most demonic that we've been talking about. If we don't have any awareness, any Buddha, any awakenedness, then we we just get wafted around by by these energies, by these forces. 
but to contain that which is harmful, to, to be able to say, no, this is not something I want to follow, this is not something I want to put in motion. It's a very significant thing to be able to do, and quite, uh, quite challenging. So in this way, as we can trust, uh, there's a, a, a saying from Master Hua, whose teachings we've been contemplating a little this time, um, which I also like very much, and that is uh, he, his quote, he has a quote which is, accord with conditions without compromising true principle. And I find this uh, valuable in daily life, according with conditions, in this notion of the Bodhisattva, the one that can actually be with whatever the situation is, rather than judging it, it's spiritual or it's not spiritual, or it's good or it's bad, being able to meet whatever being has come into our path, being able to accord, to be malleable in a way, to meet, but it doesn't, but alongside that, without compromising true principle, one can meet, but one doesn't necessarily have to go along with that which we don't really like, or that which we don't want to. So this is a profound contemplation, how to be in life, with this notion of one that can accord, can meet, see ultimately the unity of all, that is, all beings that are, but without compromising that which we really know to be true for ourselves, to be able to hold our own truth, our own space, our own sila. So in the, these, these, just one more general contemplation on this, this notion of one of the nine qualities of the Buddha that we've been chanting. Um, that the, the qualities of one perfectly awakened, um, not only understanding nibbana and enlightenment, but expressing in relationship an awakened mind. One of these qualities is is, a perf- is perfect in conduct as well, so that there's no discrepancy between the understanding, the wisdom, the compassion, and how it's lived out. And I think this is also... Um, a really profound contemplation. We, we can actually have very um, clear insights sometimes, but it can take time for us to really embody that, to be able to live um, more fully. This is, this is an important notion to, to have also when, um, when practicing the Dharma and perhaps or being in a lifestyle where people look to us like in our situation, or in the, if one is in the, as a therapist or a healer, or in any, many, many different spheres as a parent, um, where there's a trust, given a trust given almost, um, and one is in a position of holding that. And there's, a, there's a certain responsibility, there's a certain care, there's a certain um, yeah, responsibility to be able to, to not damage that trust. And that's, you know, in the realm of human relationship, that's not always easy to live out because of, of our own delusions or our own distorted desires. We, we, we can damage each other quite horribly sometimes when that trust is given. Same in intimate relationship as well. Um, and so these, this notion of integrity can help us 
even if there is um, forces that we're working with that, that, that aren't easy, that could damage that trust, it can help us to actually look, well, what did the Buddha say about this? What is right action in these situations? The first precept is about harmlessness. It's about being trustworthy. It's about allowing all beings to breathe a sigh of relief because we're not going to draw them into uh, to, to conflict with us unnecessarily, you know, unconsciously, hopefully, that we're not going to... Our intention is not to harm. We're sending out the message to all beings. And my intention, um, yes, perhaps heedlessly, I, I, I might harm, but my intention, and I intend to embody that more and more, is to live in a harmless way. And uh, not to intimidate, not to frighten, not to put down. And in its most extreme sense, not, the, the actual wording, pana dipata, means not to take the life of that which breathes. Pana is, is the Pali word of prana, that which is breathing, breathing being. To refrain, to to honour the force of life. At its most subtle, I like um, Thich Nhat Hanh's version of these five precepts, and you can check them out. Uh, he's done a lot of work on this way of integrating um, engaged Dharma in everyday life. Uh, one of his interpretations is not to kill or to let kill or to tolerate any murderous act in my thoughts or in my way of living. So he takes it at a very subtle level, not to harm ourselves with the way that we think even. To, perhaps for many of us, we're not going to have a problem with, with killing another person, but we might have a problem with the way that we constantly murder ourselves in our thinking. <laughs> and so we, we can actually take it... They, the, the precepts always need to be worked with and used with... with wisdom, with reflection, with meditation, so we can have, uh, we can reflect um, how we think, Is it, do we think in harmful ways, again this relates to this notion of mind training that we've been talking about, and, and the opposite side of this restraint, restraining harmful impulse, is the determination to develop compassion, an ability to be more sensitive to life. And from the most subtle to the most extreme, as, as this notion of Sikabadan training, we just we come in at a level that we feel is workable, that we feel we can manage. As uh, some of the, the Thai forest monks say in the villages of Thailand, uh, to try and get people not to kill each other, to try and start at not killing animals is, is too difficult for them because that's that that's the way they live, but to try just to stop them killing each other <laughs> is a start. Um, to talk about you know very refined observance of precepts is, is maybe not something that is manageable. Uh, but for most of us, uh, uh, it's probably more the refined end of things that we might be looking at, or maybe not. But wherever we we happen to find ourselves on the scale, it's finding a point of working and working in a way that rather than using precepts just to increase our sense of guilt and self-condemnation, this is where the meditative process is so important to be able to be in touch, to feel 
if we're in a, that there are grey areas, if we're in a situation like with our dog Jack on the land, sometimes he turns up covered in fleas and ticks, and it's a lot of suffering. And there's this, you know, what should one do? One can get flea powder, and you can sort of put it on pretending you don't know what's happening, you know? It's like, <laughs> and so, in the monastic life, it was very clear. I mean, one didn't keep pets, so the whole issue didn't come up. Um, as I was talking about issues around money the other day, or issues around sexuality, there's a, in the Vinaya, there's a lot that you don't have to deal with because it just doesn't occur. And in lay life, there's a lot of grey areas. But this, this notion of precept is, is, I like the way Kittisara talks about it. It's like, it, it's, it's an indication that you're moving into an area of higher karmic voltage. It's like when you move into a, a sphere around the precept you know that you're dealing with more energy. And sometimes you do, maybe you do have to take an action that takes life. Maybe uh, in defleeing Jack, which I've done, yes, I know that actually some of those fleas aren't going to survive the process. But what one can do is to, be, to, to actually feel it, to allow oneself to connect, to actually receive the pain of that. Uh, not to make a big trip out of it, but to actually feel um, and take responsibility for what we do have to do. I take responsibility for there's a choice. I have to make, I'm making a choice in this. I could just leave the situation. I could go unconscious. I could just, you know, do something heedlessly, not accepting responsibility. But yes, I accept responsibility. I feel that there is some, something a bit painful in this. I allow myself to feel it. And I turn that around. I dedicate maybe in, in another situation, another way, I can be of service to these fleas in another lifetime, perhaps. <laughs> you know, to actually working more consciously with these grey areas. But the whole point of the, the precept is really being able to more consciously take responsibility for our karmic activity and to feel the results of what we're doing. And when we feel the results, not to create more complexity by turning it into a notion of guilt, but just to say, yes, this is, this is informing me. This is, this is this notion of the guardian. We were talking about that which guards the conscience, that which guards the world, that which guards the heart and mind. It's this ability to feel when we've done something not that wholesome, to feel that if that goes, then we have no barometer anymore. When it goes in the world, it's when we reach chaos. When it goes in the mind, then we have chaos. So it is important to, to feel the heat sometimes of when we've said something and we sit with it that evening and it feels like, oh, that wasn't so good. And then it takes a lot of skill, meditative skill, not to create a sankara around it, create a guilt trip. Me and my you know, stupid speech. I'm just hopeless. And, and, then we, and actually, that, is, that, that isn't... That, that is heedlessness. That is just creating unnecessary suffering. So that, that's something we can really investigate. What is the, the tension between feeling something so it can inform us? I didn't like the what I said there. I don't really want to do that. I don't really want to manifest in that way. Let it inform me that there is some heat in that. And then just moving on and saying, yes, we will, again and again and again, perhaps, allow ourselves to feel 
the unwholesome effects of what we've done for the sake of growing rather than for the sake of condemning our, and taking it as a self and creating this condemned and damned being in the mind. So, they, yeah, it's like all of these teachings, how we pick them up, how we use them, it's so, so important. Second precept, Dina Dana, means to. It's about our relationship to to um, to the world around us in terms of what we take, what what is meant for us, what is given to us, uh, and what isn't. In its most um, unsubtle form, it's about not stealing, um, not manipulating the material or even the emotional realm around us to get what we feel we need or we want um, to take what hasn't been given or offered. And in the again, in the, the monastic life, this is refined to a very subtle degree. One would be even attentive to um, picking up a pencil or something and, and walking off with it. Sort of, and it was a good training. There's something very harmless about that. I do it all the time. You sort of oh, it's pencil, need, need it. But there was it, it, the, the point wasn't really the pencil. The point was the training in the mind to really check out: is this mine or not? Is it meant for me or not? Yeah. What will it set in motion? So Titniat Han talks about to undertake the precept not to steal and not to take anything that doesn't really belong to us. And in the positive side is uh, the practicing of generosity, sharing time, my energy, and my material resources to fa- those in, with those in need. So this, in a way, this way of <coughs> noting, <coughs> sometimes it's grasping tendency, I really need that, or I really want this, and using our power to manipulate the world to get what we need, to dissolve that, to be able to share, to be able to give. <clears throat> with other people as well, uh, you do, being able to be in relationship in an increasingly undemanding way um, to really receive what another being may offer us of themselves rather than the, uh, the tendency to demand, to manipulate and to create incredible complexity and uh, constriction around that energy. So, yes, it's, it's a trust again. It's a, a trust in allowing ourselves to be open to the Dharma and to not have to grasp life uh, in a way that creates even more compounded suffering. So this precept is also very profound. And the third one, Kame Sumichachara, is about working with sensuality and sexuality, these very powerful energies in life, and the notion of restraining that which is unwholesome or um, destructive. The sense, Kamo is one of these three tanhas, these three firsts. Kamo is the first for sensual fulfillment, how we use our sensuality uh, in a way that doesn't become jaded, um, not overly um, filling through the, the senses in a way that we can no longer 
have a a sense vehicle that is that is um, yeah that it's not jaded that 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 can maintain its sensitivity. It's not bombarded uh, through overeating or through over um, uh, too much intake on the of the TV or magazines or um, whatever. I think this this whole area is quite profound too. How we our relationship to the sensory our sensory experience and our sexuality as well. This one is Kamesumicharachara. In the, again, in the monastic life, it was the Abramacharya, which is a, a vow of celibacy. And that doesn't mean to say the end of working with sexual energy. Uh, but there is a, in a way, there was a certain clarity uh, about one's sexual energy in relationship to others. And then there, there was a lot to learn, for me anyhow, there was a lot to learn about using celibacy um, and all that goes with it emotional needs, uh, sexual needs, using that energy, containing it um, for the sake of really investigating what is this energy about really? Uh, (laughs) It's a profound contemplation. In in lay life again it it gets into some, well actually can get into some grey areas in monasteries too um, sometimes. um, but in, in lay life, so where there isn't perhaps such clear definitions, it can get, um, yeah, there can be a lot of, a lot of grey areas to look at. And the, the, the general, uh, guideline for this is to not use sexuality in an exploitive way. Uh, to exploit those that are perhaps in a less, um, powerful position in us, if we're in a powerful position. And, uh, we use that to draw someone into a relationship with us or an abusive way or with a a minor, underage person then this this can create incredible um, pain and damage Uh, so not using sexuality in an exploitive or abusive way to meet our own needs is one of the general guidelines that the Buddha gave another general guideline that the Buddha gave was not to move in on already uh, betrothed relationships or if you do knowing that one's moving into a until that relationship is sorted where there's been a, a, a previous contract made almost someone's betrothed someone's in a relationship someone's in a marriage or in a committed partnership um, and yes that might change and they might part ways but it's like saying if you're moving into that then know that there's going to be a, a lot going on uh, usually quite a lot of suffering that needs uh, a lot of a lot of energy in that situation um, sitting at hand says I determined to develop my sense of responsibility in order to protect the security and integrity, integrity of each individual couples, families and society in regard to this energy I determined not to have sexual relations without love or long-term commitment, which is, um, which I think is a beautiful addition, um, because again, the the power of what one engages with and sets in motion with another. And so one can um, transform that energy into, uh, rather than, there's so much me and my loved one 
um, and all that goes into that, the, the, the huge amounts of clinging that can happen in that when it gets really reduced um, to me and my loved one, or me and meeting my desires. One that energy has it, it has in its potential enormous sense of ability to um, open into a compassionate relationship with with a with all beings, really. It can be very unlimited. The fourth precept, Musawada, sorry for, this is, this, there's no, well, for me it's not very easy to go through these in a dynamic and entertaining way. These precepts are a bit of a slog, but they, as I said at the beginning, they are incredibly important foundation that we, that is part of our daily life. And this this fourth precept perhaps gives the most grief for most people, actually, the, the one about speech, right, speech. Um, partly because the other energies tend to be more obvious and more containable. If there's a murderous thought, one you know, usually knows that one should, it's probably a good idea to contain it um, and work with it more consciously. Like incredible lust or sexual desires, there's usually sort of a sense of, well, maybe I should not just randomly follow this energy, but speech, it's like it's there in the mind and phew, uh, and it can have enormous power. And it's a bit like that story Kisa was telling us when he was at the Gorge de Tarn, when he pushed that boulder off the mountain. And sometimes speeches like that, you can see it going. And, uh, and it's, it's very hard to kind of put it back where it came from. And uh, yeah, it, it creates realities. Speech is literally called vocal thought. It's based in thought, so actually as, the, as we enter more deeply the mind training, the purification of thought itself, it will naturally, organically affect our speech, but we can also work at it the other way, restraining certain kinds of speech at least, at least harsh speech. And Buddha, again, gave some very helpful categories um, to, to when one really wants to say something in anger. It doesn't mean to say that, that something shouldn't be said. I think that can also be a very confused point for people. Sometimes people feel, I should never, if I'm angry, I should never say anything. I should just bottle it up. Um, yes, actually, probably something should be said, but it's, it's how and with what energy is said. So there's this red light that can go off when, with harsh speech, um, speech that can cut another can destroy another. Or, Titney at hand says, to refrain from spreading information whose authenticity has not yet been established, and not to condemn or to criticise that which I'm not certain of. That's, that's quite a profound one to contemplate. There's, there's something really exciting sometimes about, do you know what's happened to so-and-so? <laughs> can you believe it? wouldn't have believed it. I mean, that's amazing. Can you imagine? And uh, we can create these realities on a little bit of gossip. And perhaps it might not even be founded, or perhaps it's just an excuse to titillate the mind. Or it's an excuse to put down someone we don't like. <laughs> so this, this restraint. Um... And to undertake to devote the necessary effort, this is his addition, to the reconciliation and the resolution of all conflicts, even though they may be small. So something active, the way of using speech in a positive way, to actually bring harmony, to bring healing. 
I, I learned a useful technique from um, one of the monks in the monastery because uh, one of the difficulties I have, I get very enthusiastic about things, you know, projects and this and the other, and I find myself agreeing to do something, and then when I think about it, it's like, oh my God, what have I done? <laughs> and setting, uh, if one's a creative person, sometimes one can love to set things in motion, and then it, it might be difficult to actually follow it up, or unrealistic, uh, or someone, or I feel I have this compulsion, someone will say, well, you know, will ring up and say, would you like to do so-and-so, and I think, oh yeah, that's great. I put the phone down and think, oh, I don't know. <laughs> And uh, this monk said to me uh, once, he said, you know, one of the, you, could, you can actually say, you can give yourself some space. He said, you can say, let me think about it. That's nice. I, thank you for the invitation. Let me think about it. Oh, yeah. Don't, on the moment, on the spur of the moment, one doesn't have to say yes or no. Because sometimes one doesn't like to reject someone or feel like one's saying, no, I don't want to do that. But one doesn't have to kind of go, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that's quite, that's quite nice. Let me just think about that. Let me just take some space. Let me be with it. The fifth precept, Sura Miraya Majapamadatana, is about respecting the consciousness that we're working, not distort, unnecessarily distorting uh, consciousness through the misuse of intoxicants and drugs, which lead to to carelessness, which lead to in inebriated state, perhaps being involved with karmic activity that uh, that uh, we can be actually very unconscious about. So, this, this thing at hand talks about determining to maintain good physical and mental health by the practice of full awareness when eating, drinking and consuming. Yeah, it's about what we consume. Um, to honour the vehicle of our body and of our consciousness, of our mind and of our emotions. Not to consume any food or products containing toxins like certain television emissions, broadcasts, transmissions, certain magazines, books or conversations. So we're not poisoning ourselves, basically. So he takes this to quite a, a subtle level. What, what do we get intoxicated with? And in the, in the meditative process, in the traditional translation, it's to refrain from intoxicating liquors and drugs which distort the mind. Um, and and this is this is because we're we're learning. Yes, we can get into very sometimes numb states, exalted states, expanded states, disassociated states with the use of uh, intoxicants. But the principle of um, working in a meditative way with awakening is to work with whatever is present, whatever consciousness is present. And there can be something about not you know, using uh, intoxicants to remove us from that which we find uncomfortable. You know, we have an uncomfortable, restless feeling, or we've had a hard day at work, and uh, it can be very seemingly very innocent, to turn to the drinks cupboard, pull out a whiskey, have a dram, feel relaxed, oh, turn on the TV, oh, bliss, oh, it's so easy to have you know, all this Samadhi stuff, I mean, it's just... <laughs> um, you know, and, and that's, that's social activity, but the, the, the difficulty in it, one of the, from the meditative point of view, is that one actually gets habituated to, rather than working more consciously with that which we find difficult, we actually introduce uh, a, a weakening of our ability 
to stay with dukkha for the sake of the ending of it. We actually introduce the notion of, uh, of just avoiding, turning away, changing, distorting and changing the immediate consciousness that we're working with. Ajahn Chah said a, a very interesting thing to the Westerners that, that started to come in the 70s to his monastery, who a lot of them had been involved, you know, with the end of the wave of the 60s and the psychedelic era, experiencing very expanded states of consciousness. And, you know, what's the problem? You can get there very quickly, really. You don't have to spend 20 years sitting in a forest or go on a 10-day retreat or, you know, just... Um, yeah, just uh, take a ingest some substance and phew, the mind is radiant, open, and all. And Ajahn Charles comment, he said, "Well, you, you Westerners, he said, you're you're like monkeys in a way. He said, you, it's like you get you take these things and you get vaulted up a tree, a, a coconut tree, and you grab the coconut and it's like you, but only to to be pulled down by the force of your karma. You know, you haven't really." You haven't got enough karmic um, ripening to actually stay up there, so you just, you know, when the when the when the circumstances aren't there anymore to to hold, then it's just, and actually the descent is even more hellish than than what was there before usually. Just, uh, um, and so he talked about, yeah, the motive path is slow, it's slower, it's gradual, and he said rather than vaulting oneself. Uh, into an expanded state of consciousness. It's like a, he gave the analogy of a pyramid. You build a good base. And this is the work of Siva, day to day, bit by bit, working, transforming the karma. 